We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Just a reminder that this is a very rapidly evolving topic, so anything we talk about today may have changed by the time you listen to this podcast. My guest today is Dr. Rishi Desai, who is a pediatric infectious disease physician with a public health background, who currently serves as the chief medical officer at Osmosis and recently led Khan Academy Medicine. Dr. Desai had an accelerated education, completing high school and receiving his BS in microbiology and molecular genetics from UCLA by the age of 18. He completed his medical training at UC San Francisco and went on to work at medical centers including Boston Children's Hospital, Boston Medical Center, Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and Stanford University. He earned his master's degree in epidemiology at UCLA and then spent two years at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as an epidemic intelligence service officer investigating disease outbreaks before beginning his work in online medical education. As Osmosis's chief medical officer, Dr. Desai leads the development of content creation, public outreach, and strategic growth. Osmosis generates open education videos and questions that are available in multiple languages and serves as a personalized learning engine for 600,000-plus medical students, clinicians, and caregivers around the world. As a company, Osmosis seeks to empower this population with the best learning experience possible, and Dr. Desai plays a vital role in this mission. Rishi, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective about this pandemic as a pediatric infectious disease specialist. Before we get going with the questions, is there anything else you'd like the audience to know about yourself? No, I wanted to just say thank you for inviting me to be part of this. This is really great. Thank you. Well, it's our honor and pleasure to have you on here, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you'll be able to teach me and teach our audience. Can we start by having you tell our audience a bit more about your background, your journey to medicine, and your involvement with osmosis? Sure. So I went to medical school right after college, and I went to do residency in pediatrics for three years, did a fellowship in pediatric ID for another three years. And at that point, was kind of figuring out my life. And I thought maybe public health would be a good direction to go. So I went to the CDC, uh, did two years of outbreak research, was doing virus outbreaks, specifically norovirus and rotavirus, and really enjoyed it. While I was there, I learned of Khan Academy. My, uh, my wife, at the time we weren't married, but she told me about it and, and since we got married. And she in, introduced me to this world of online education I didn't know about. And I thought it was something that I could get better at and could really enjoy. And I practiced and tried. And I got a lucky break. And I went to Khan Academy and led Khan Academy Medicine, made videos. I uh, got really into that. Was practicing medicine at the same time. It was a small fraction of what I did. Most of what I did was medical education. And then I learned of osmosis and I got to know Shiv and Ryan and they're the two co-founders and really enjoyed my conversations with them, thought they were really great and very passionate. And I thought that this would be a good career move to join them. And I've been at osmosis for now five years and have loved it. It's been a really great 
uh, marriage of many interests, you know, public health, education, clinical medicine, and, and doing sort of outreach work like this. So it's been really fantastic for me. That's really great. And it sounds like with that marriage of public health and medical education, by having it in an online platform, you're really able to amplify your message and the teaching that you're able to do. Yeah. You know, one uh, small part of my day to day is telemedicine. I work as a telemedicine doctor and I'm always fascinated by the fact that I see a patient, let's say for 10 minutes at a time. That means in a whole day, I can see 48 people during those 48 visits. I'm saying a lot of the same things, especially nowadays around COVID-19 reiterating my message over and over. And I think uh, what I've come to realize is that what's much more impactful than simply uh, stating the same thing over and over is making a really uh, engaging video around it. And that's where the public health education piece is so big uh, for osmosis. That's great. And you work as a pediatric infectious disease specialist, as you mentioned. Can you tell us a bit more about your work and what a typical day was like for you before the COVID-19 pandemic? Because I'm sure it certainly changed in this setting. Yeah, sure. So when I was seeing patients in the clinical setting, and this is back when I was working at Stanford, I would go in and about half my caseload was patients with normal immune systems uh, that will develop an, an infection like Staph aureus and will get those infections repeatedly. So we talk about things like how to keep your home clean, how to think about fomites or environmental services and, and conversations that now we have in the context of COVID-19. Uh, the other half of my patients were patients with uh, immune deficiencies or medications that make them immunodeficient. And then they get more run-of-the-mill infections, but they can cause a lot of disease in those individuals. And so that was where I saw more uh, rare infections. And so that, that would be the blend of what I would see. It was all outpatient. And I really enjoyed it because it partnered well with the things that I was doing for the majority of my time, which is medical education. That's great. And so what are your days like now? Uh, because I'm sure they are different. And, and can you tell us what you're seeing clinically in terms of the COVID-19 impact on the pediatric population? Sure. Yeah. So nowadays, a lot of what I'm doing is uh, outreach, trying to dig through the literature, understanding it both from an epidemiologic standpoint, but also an infectious disease clinician standpoint. And then trying to relay all that stuff that I learn to the general public and also to health practitioners. Nowadays, the general public is getting inundated with COVID-19 information from all sides. Many times they know just as much as health practitioners do about the ins and outs because they saw uh, a, a professional speak on it and understood it. And so then they're at the same playing field. So day to day, a lot of what I do is education and outreach based on the research that I'm getting. Uh, for my team, my team is huge, and they are made up of medical illustrators, editors, voiceover um, professionals. They all work together to create really engaging short visuals, and we put that all together on onosmosis.org slash COVID-19 for general folks in the community, as well as for health practitioners. As far as clinically, you know, I mentioned I do telemedicine. A lot of what I see there is the worried well, generally well children. Uh, whose parents call in because they're concerned about a fever or a sore throat and aren't sure how to distinguish that from every other illness that child got. And, and truth be told, they probably wouldn't even call in had it not been COVID-19. So otherwise, they would have taken care of that child, but now are calling in to get advice. And so that's really what I'm seeing a lot of. And that's probably what all of America is seeing a lot of is the worried well calling in and trying to figure out how to navigate this and figure out what they need to do. Um, Rishi, we'll make sure that 
osmosis.org slash COVID-19 lands in the show notes uh, because our audience, it, this is the general public that is listening to this podcast. And I know that we have healthcare practitioners there and, and there's a lot of really good education on that website, more for healthcare practitioners, but really for both. And, and there's a lot of overlap in there. So I want to encourage everybody to go take a look and, and learn more about COVID-19. You spent two years at the CDC as an epidemic intelligence service officer investigating disease outbreaks. Can you tell us about this work and how it's informed your perspective on this COVID pandemic? Absolutely. So what they would do is they would get a call from a state public health agency and they would either request our help uh, because they were stretched and those state folks are working and doing incredible work on very few resources, or there'd be an outbreak that would be across state boundaries. And in that situation, the CDC often gets involved as well. So I'd get to go to uh, a state at their invitation. And what would happen is, and I'll give you an example, we went and did an outbreak investigation among NBA basketball players. And it turned out that a number of basketball players were getting sick with a viral disease. Uh, and that disease, norovirus, was spreading across basketball teams. So we would send out surveys, we'd collect fecal samples or stool samples, and then try to test out whether that virus that player A got was the same one as player B and C to see if there was a link. That was one setting. A very different setting was where I got sent off to a nursing home where they had a few deaths among uh, folks that were living at the nursing home. And it was unexpected. And so we went there and investigated and found out that they did indeed have an outbreak of viral gastroenteritis. And we had to figure out how to clean things. So in that setting, a lot of what we did was figuring out what materials or what solutions the, the housekeeping staff was using and how to make sure it was EPA certified and how long things were drying off for before people are invited back to the cafeteria areas and things like that. So a lot of the work I did was in trying to chase down outbreaks in the early days when it's unclear what the cause is, how many people are really sick, and then how to effectively stop the transmission of it. Interesting. That's really interesting work. Um, so you've had these strong professional credentials and this really dynamic career, and then you became an internet sensation essentially overnight after appearing on Fox News very recently. And we'll link to that segment in the show notes. Can you tell us what the reaction has been to your comments on that new segment? Yeah, what I'll say is I was invited to be part of that, uh, that show. Uh, from the beginning to the middle to the end, they, the, the show staff treated me with utmost respect and kindness. During the show, I felt like they were very respectful and kind and, and frankly, curious and inquisitive. I thought the questions were excellent. And afterwards, I became known for that show and what I did there. But what I wanted to try to do is take advantage of that, uh, that moment and try to say that there's much more here than just kind of an, an interesting dialogue um, on that one show. What what I can do now is now point to the fact that we have a lot of interest in COVID-19. It's coming from all sectors. And rather than point backwards and say, hey, you know, who did what when? And, and there will be a time and place for that, frankly, in the months and even years to come. Right now, we're in the middle of it. We're in the thick of it. And hospitals are hurting. Uh, clearly, families are hurting. And there are very specific things we can do to help. Uh, in the coming days, there's going to be a more and more focus on how do we deal with these two issues, COVID-19, but also the economy. And there are very 
very, very uh, simple things that we can do to make that work for both sides. So for example, we have a course on osmosis.org that's specifically aimed at training folks that may be unemployed or underemployed, maybe they just got laid off, and getting them over to join the healthcare workforce. Now, that's a workforce that's needed help anyway. In fact, uh, let's take the specific example of certified nursing assistants or home health aides or personal care aides. Those groups have been in the top 15 job growth areas well before COVID-19. We, we had a, a very scarce number of them. We needed far more. And now we need even more. And so we're trying to get free training for these folks to get them to the front lines to help out with this COVID-19 effort. It's truly a, you know, a, a global effort, but, but right here in the U.S., knowing full well that those people need the job badly and that they're going to keep that job in the months to come. So that's a, a simple example of how I'm trying to move the dialogue as much as possible uh, away from just finger pointing to pointing to solutions that I think we can achieve. Yes. And you and I were talking before the start of this interview about this idea of raising the line. And I would love it if you would tell the audience just a little bit more about that concept that we were talking about off air and also a little bit more about that training program and, and where um, audience members, if they want to go look into that, can, can find some more details. Yeah. Thank you for offering me that chance. So everyone's heard the phrase flatten the curve. And the idea is that you do what you can to isolate and socially distance so we have less cases. The healthcare system in general operates near capacity. You know, even if you cancel elective procedures and invite retirees back and get fourth-year med students to be in the mix, you're still not really able to move too far up. What you really need is an infusion. And that's what we're trying to do is get an infusion of new healthcare workers, first-time healthcare workers that are not part of that system already, but would like to be. And we know that there are lots and lots of job losses. The unemployment numbers are quite high across the board in various sectors. And what we're doing is essentially offering free retraining to say, hey, you may not have a healthcare background, but we can get you trained up online. And we can do it quickly in a matter of, let's say, around 10 to 14 days. Once you get retrained, if your state is in agreement with us, and this is where we're looking directly at state governments to help us out here, uh, as well as the federal government, if, if they could help us out too, to say, look, meet us halfway and understand that we're doing this to make sure we can meet the need, but also want to do it in a way that's going to be quality and doesn't sacrifice anything for the patients. If we can get this done as a, as a team, we can get frontline healthcare workers out there right now. And to join, you, you go to raisetheline.org. That website is set up and you can sign up today to learn more about that effort. Well, we'll make sure we get that into the show notes as well, because it sounds like there's an altruistic mission. It's very much community focused and, and trying to you know, improve the care and get people working who, who may be out of work. Um, real grassroots effort. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure that is loud and proud in the, uh, in the show notes. So Rishi, you have advocated for a federally mandated shutdown to help stop the spread of COVID in the U.S. And there's a lot of debate about that, especially with regard to its impact on the economy. Can you tell us more about the idea and your opinions on it? Yeah, I understand the, the concern around the economy. The way I would say it is this. We know that the virus spreads as people get together. That's a fact. And the more people get together, the more the virus spreads. And the virus is right now still in a, in a growth phase. Now, in very selected areas like New York, New Jersey, 
we might be seeing a bit of leveling off. And any leveling off that we see can be directly tied back to social distancing and isolation. So if we know that everyone has to eventually do this and that the curve is growing, then we also know that the longer we wait, the, the larger that growth is going to go and the bigger that curve. So what I'm suggesting is this, every state across the country, and ideally at the federal level, there should be a mandate to completely isolate down to minimum essential behaviors. Going for a walk in the park would be okay. Going to the grocery store, going to the pharmacy. But what would not be okay is gathering in groups and having parties, you know, getting together for uh, a social event or an outing, um, musical events, all that stuff has to be shut down until we get control of this situation. And if we know that the longer you have to wait, the longer you have to shut down for, then if we did it today, that's the best day to do it. Because then you know that you're going to get a, a hold of this. And that brings our economy back on track more quickly. The moment we see the cases in different localities start to level off and start to fall, the economy will start to breathe life again. And so that's what I'm really excited about is the idea of shortening the period of time that we have to do these measures, but doing them immediately so that they have effect. Right. And I think my next question here is along the same line of thinking, and that is you've also proposed the idea of closing air travel. Can you also tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that and, and even dive, like, I think we kind of understand the why, but what are your thoughts about why that hasn't happened yet? I think that there's a lot of confusion about how to balance concerns, how to balance a concern around COVID-19 with a concern around the economy. And the more things you shut down, the more abnormal things feel, and that can create a sense of panic if you don't understand why. And so what I'm suggesting is that we do shut down unnecessary flights domestically, rail, you know, any sort of unnecessary public transportation that, that we can get away with shutting down, we should shut down. And we need to frame it with this idea that if we were to do this collectively, if I knew you were doing it and you knew I was doing it, then we feel like we're all in this together. Right now, part of the frustration people have is they think, well, how come I have to live this very kind of isolated life when I see people on television doing X, Y, and Z. So that, that asymmetry is what creates a lot of the frustration and the feeling that this isn't even needed. When in fact, it's very needed, we all need to do it. And the faster we all do it, the faster the economy gets back on track, and we all start feeling better about things again. Yeah, that's a great message there. Um, Rishi, on the Fox News segment that we talked about briefly earlier, um, you took issue with the claim that the U.S. is doing large-scale testing. What is the reality around that? So I just checked, you know, in the first week of April, we did about 1 million tests. Up until April, so if you count, you know, January, February, March, we did about 1 million tests in aggregate. And most of that came at the end of March. So we have the capabilities to doing large-scale testing, 1 million tests in just seven days. The unfortunate part is that we weren't doing that week on week on week on week. We just did that in the last week. What would have been nice is to have that testing data up front. If we had that data in February, then we would have had a good sense of who has it and who doesn't. And at that point, instead of doing isolation and mass, if the problem was small enough and our public health system was strong enough in, in the sense that they had enough individuals to help with contact tracing, then we could have done much more 
precision-based isolation, where we isolate just the cases. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. And make sure we do contact tracing and isolate those folks. Rather than doing blanket isolation, which is what we have to do now, because at this point, the problem just gotten so big. So had we done that testing, we could have done much more precise isolation that would have created less panic and less shutdown of the economy. So a lot of what we're facing now is a direct consequence of not having that testing a couple of months ago. Interesting. Um, and just earlier this afternoon, I actually read a report that Stanford University is doing a study of Californians because California so far does not seem to be as hard hit as, you know, compared with New York City, as an example. And part of that may be related to social distancing, but there's a belief you just brought up January, February, March. There, there's a belief that the virus may have passed through um, earlier and maybe even as early as the fall. Do you, do you want to tell um, everybody kind of the thoughts behind this uh, and your thinking on this idea? Yeah, some of this is based on how we see the virus mutating and the sense that it takes a certain period of time for the virus to mutate. So people back calculate when the virus must have first gotten there. The challenge is that we don't have more direct evidence. Direct evidence would have been testing, of course. And so in the absence of direct evidence, we're looking at secondary evidence to sort of uh, conjecture when the virus first arrived. In California, one of the things that they did, which has paid great dividends, is Alameda County, where, where I'm based, was one of the first counties in the country to have a stay-at-home type order. And other counties followed suit. Uh, there were six counties initially. The state followed suit right away, uh, right after that. And, and as I've observed it here in California, I've got friends and family all over the state it's been well observed in general. And so I think when you have a state that acted early and where you have a populace that really bought into it and said, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do this, what you do is you immediately freeze out the virus. The virus has nowhere to go because it cannot cross freeways. It cannot hop across the street. It literally has to be you know, within uh, a certain number of feet from one another. Which means that if you do these things like the social distancing, and isolation, stay-at-home orders, you truly see the benefits. This is a clear example where the science tells you what you should see, and then we do see it. And so California did act early. We're seeing the, the benefit of that now. The cases are still going up slightly, but not nearly at the exponential level that is happening in other areas. And I think New York reacted well, but in the weeks leading up to when they had the shutdown order, uh, it was really taking off in a way that hadn't been happening in California. Right. And they likely had a lot of these asymptomatic or, or minimally symptomatic people all over the city for days and weeks. And then it kind of snowballs, you know, before you even have a chance to react to it. Correct. 
Exactly. Yeah. So when you can't detect asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic carriers, uh, then you have no idea how many of them are spreading it, as you said. And at the time, probably a lot of behaviors were happening, like, you know, lack of social distancing, probably less awareness at that time of the importance of things like masks or, or not going out and shaking hands and things like that. So all of that helped spread the virus to the point where it, it really was uh, a huge iceberg by the time we saw a little bit of it kind of poke its head above the surface of the water. And that's what's really wrecked uh, the city and the state. Uh, at this point, now they're in triage mode uh, and doing a great job of it, but it's been a disaster for that reason. Right, right. Um, can you share your thoughts on our nation's response to this pandemic and perhaps compare our response with the response of other countries such as South Korea or Germany, who seem to have a better handle and kind of flatten the curve better than we did? Both South Korea and Germany went hard into testing and continue to lead the way in testing. Uh, Germany has done a great job around serology. Uh, South Korea really set up some great examples of things like drive-through testing and, and telephone booth testing, where you walk into a, what looks like a telephone booth, get tested, and walk out. So really made testing convenient, removed any sort of stigma or, frankly, any barrier to getting tested. And as a result, both of those countries have benefited in slightly different ways. South Korea knew the scope of the problem. They had their first case when we had our first case here in the U.S., and yet the total number of cases and deaths has been uh, much, much smaller than what we've had. So that's been a clear success story and something that we can learn from even today. Germany has really led the way, in my opinion, on serology and understanding serologic markers and serologic testing to better understand what immunity means, when it's safe for people to go back out, kind of the next phase that we as a country will eventually enter into as we start thinking about issues of how do you open up the country again. So both countries used science to guide their approach. And they essentially recognized that if a virus is spreading quickly, we need data. They went out and did the testing and got the logistics together to get that data. And if you follow both countries' trajectory, they've done quite well. Uh, our country, by comparison, didn't do that in the month of February. In the month of February, we largely didn't have much data. The initial rollout of the of the testing uh, didn't go smoothly. Uh, in even early March, it was still sort of still ramping up. And it wasn't really up until the last couple of weeks that we've had testing at the level that we've needed. Problem is, size of our problem is now much, much bigger. And so given the size of our problem, you know, the level of testing now, even though it's similar to South Korea, it still needs to be much bigger. So we still need to ramp up testing further, given that the problem has gotten so much bigger and so out of hand at this point. So that's why you're seeing, A, our mortality rate is higher than theirs, because, of course, we're not capturing the asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people. And our efforts at mitigating this have been really difficult, because when you have so many people that are ill with COVID-19, it's hard to stretch resources to manage all those folks. And our public health infrastructure has been chipped away at for many, many uh, years uh, beyond just one presidency. And so for all these reasons, you know, COVID-19 has taken advantage of, of uh, our situation. Right. And I'm glad you bring up the topic of serology. I'm going to ask you a question about that in, in just a moment. But before I do, can you tell our audience a bit about the accuracy of the tests that we have available uh, for testing whether somebody is positive or negative for currently having COVID-19? Sure. Yeah. So a lot of that goes to RT-PCR, which is a way of trying to uh, look for the virus RNA. And typically, you look for it in a few different spots. 
So you might look for it in the nose or you might go to the back of the throat or a sputum where you have someone kind of cough up. Uh, ideally, the best way to look for it is bronchial alveolar lavage, where you do a washing of the lung. Uh, and you can imagine that's a very hard thing to do and we do it very rarely. So the most common way to do it and the way that's recommended typically is called NP swab or nasopharyngeal swab. And the sensitivity on the NP swab it differs depending on what study you look at, but it's around 70%, 7-0. So if it's around 70%, that makes you take pause because that means that, you know, and this is early on in the disease. So later on in the disease, it might be positive. And in fact, that's how you even know that you've missed some. But what that does is it makes you take pause and it makes you think, well, that means three out of 10 people might be getting missed. And we actually put a video out on this topic uh, a few weeks back talking about how you should, if you're concerned about COVID-19, look at other things like a chest CT for evidence of disease. And maybe that alone could be enough to, to warrant you believing someone has COVID-19 and then retesting them. So I don't want anyone to walk away from this uh, podcast thinking that, you know, this test is perfect. It's not. But it is considered the gold standard. And looking for viral RNA is still the gold standard. There are some other strategies you could use. Like, so for example, you could do essentially what's called combined testing, testing with RT-PCR plus looking for the, not the IgG antibody, but IgM antibody, which is kind of the early antibody you get when you're having an infection to see if together there's a better sensitivity. So there are a few ideas out there, but today's gold standard is still RT-PCR. Great. And you led right into the next question that I wanted to ask you. And that is, can you tell us about the tests that are becoming available to tell us if someone has developed immunity to COVID-19? And then also, when will they be more widely available? How accurate are they? Who should be tested? Kind of the whole mini lecture on this topic. Yeah, absolutely. So the other category other than RT-PCR is called serology. And serology is looking at antibodies. The two main antibodies in the blood are IgM, which occurs early on in the infection. And if you have an IgM positive, that would be interpreted as someone that has active infection. And then there's IgG. And IgG is someone that has had maybe recent infection, but it's cleared or is now immune to it. And so if you have an IgG level that's positive, then you'd say, well, you know, I must have had COVID-19, but now I don't have it. And the interpretation right now of that is that you're resistant or immune to COVID-19. Now, in the coming weeks and months, that is going to be heavily studied. How confident are we that if someone has a positive IgG, that they're actually immune? And there are lots of questions that are beneath that question. So, for example, what level of titer of IgG do we consider enough to be considered positive? So not just do you have it, do you not? but maybe there's an amount associated with it. Now, there are some tiny studies I can cite, one done on macaque monkeys where they infected the monkeys with COVID-19, the monkeys got sick, the monkeys recovered, and then they tried giving monkeys the monkeys again uh, the same virus, COVID-19, or SARS-CoV-2, and they didn't get sick. So the idea there is, at least in that tiny little study in macaque monkeys, there seemed to be some immunity from having gotten it the first time. There is, of course, a parallel here. Most other viruses, when you develop an Ig response to them, you presume that the person is immune. You know, a simple example is you know measles or mumps. You know, any of those kinds of viruses. The assumption is that you have uh, a response, and therefore you're immune. Having said that, in some individuals, they may, for whatever reason, not mount a good response. 
or maybe the response won't be as high. So this is where things like cutoffs become quite important. Another issue is that maybe in some individuals, they will get COVID-19 again, but it'll be a very mild version of it. And in fact, that's something that's being researched today as well. You know, can you get COVID-19 again? And how severe are the symptoms? Now, in a handful of viruses, it actually gets worse. You know, dengue famously, once you get dengue once, you might get certain symptoms, but the second time is much, much worse. And it's an antibody-mediated response. And there's a question around whether this happens with COVID-19. And the early answer is no. Like, there's no evidence that this actually gets worse the second time around. So these are active questions that are being answered by the scientific community around antibody, and we have to stay tuned to what the answers are. In terms of scaling up, the ELISA test is out there. It's available. There's also home testing. So the way home testing works is you essentially prick your finger, get a few drops of blood, and that blood moves through a paper, filter paper, and that filter paper has a couple of bands that will essentially light up, almost like a pregnancy test. And if you have the IgM band that lights up, then you're IgM positive and you have an acute infection. Or if the IgG band lights up, then you have a past infection. So there, these tests are available today and they've been cleared through kind of this expedited FDA uh, emergency procedure. But there is still a concern around, you know, quality and sensitivity and specificity, especially because we're making big decisions down the road about what that means and the significance of these serologic titers. So I would say the next month or so is going to be a time when there's going to be a lot of research coming out about serology. And it's good that your listeners are aware because this is likely going to affect them in some way, shape, or form. Yes, and I think this topic just demonstrates how much of a learning process this is and how much more we have to learn about the illness and our body's response to it and whether we're developing immunity and you know, vaccines are an entirely different topic, but that's, you know, a lot to learn in that arena. Do you have thoughts related to this in terms of how we start opening the country back up again and kind of lifting some of these quarantine orders? Because there, there's strategies related to testing for disease, testing for immunity, figuring out what types of work people do and, and getting the economy going again. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I would say there are a few things to consider, and I think you delineated them really well. So one is, what is your job? If you're a healthcare worker, or let's say you're an essential worker of some nature, that's a category that we need to think hard about, uh, specifically what your immune status is. So for example, let's say you're a healthcare worker and you're IgG positive, maybe you'd be more willing or likely or probably the right choice to be doing an intubation, a high-risk procedure versus somebody else, especially in an era where we're still struggling in some parts to get N95 masks. And you know we haven't even talked about personal protective equipment today, but that's still a struggle. So it might be helpful to know that the person doing this high-risk procedure is immune. The other thing that we should think about is categorizing RT-PCR versus serology. So you could imagine that you'd have, if you had this scale available, you could literally test everybody in a community. You could figure out who has serology and who doesn't, and maybe you do it at the house unit. And if you do it at the house unit, all of a sudden sensitivity and specificity start to rise because you look for concordance. You'd imagine that multiple people in the same house probably have the same types of results. And when they don't, you might test again or try to figure that out. But in general, doing it at the house unit has advantages. And if there's a house where there's somebody with active disease because of RT-PCR, maybe you isolate that house. Maybe you make sure that house has food, you know, food delivered to it every day, and they have all their basic needs met, 
and they stay indoors until they've fully recovered. And at that point, you test them with serology. So you could imagine this rolling out in that way. And then once people recover, then they get to rejoin society. And what you need to do, ideally, is have something like an immune certificate, where you say, hey, let's have uh, the state government or the national government come up with some threshold and some test that they believe is accurate. And then you basically get a, a vaccine status. I mean, we do this with kids that go to school. They have to have a vaccine card in many areas to go to school. Something similar, where if you want to open your business up, you have to show that you have evidence of being immune to COVID-19. And slowly, that starts to open the doors back up. Now, there's also high-risk groups like the elderly or immunocompromised or folks with other comorbid illness. Those groups probably need to be very vigilant about local levels of disease. And again, that's where testing is helpful because you could say, look, in your community, we're seeing really no levels of COVID-19. Why don't you come on out as well because the risk is so low? And so I think what you can get with testing is all sorts of good policy coming out that would boost people's confidence in their health, but also would actually get the economy back on track. Right. Really, that's an excellent description of that. And I think the bottom line is it's going to be a process that we have to work through and figure out from, you know, at a societal level. One thing that as we wrap up this interview, Rishi, I've been asking each of our guests if they would like to give a shout out to a local small business or a restaurant in their community where people might be able to go get takeout because this pandemic has had such an effect on, on these businesses and the workers who work for them. Are there any in your community that you'd like to give a shout out to? That's really kind of you. To be honest, I, you, you did ask me and gave me a chance to think about it. Uh, the sad truth is I have not eaten out in a long, long time, and so I'm not even familiar with who's open nowadays, but I will give a shout out to one uh, group that is local. That's the uh, Highland Hospital. Highland Hospital here in the Bay Area is uh, just amazing. They take care of literally everybody, and that emergency room is bar none, just a phenomenal training ground. And so the folks that are at Highland deserve a huge shout out, and I think that they would appreciate knowing that America is uh, rooting them on because they're doing an amazing job. That's great, Rishi. And it's very well-deserved. So thank you for that shout out. I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast and on behalf of our audience for sharing your expertise with us. It's uh, You had great learning points and really interesting insights to provide. So I thank you for taking the time and, and sharing your expertise and wisdom. It's awesome being on this uh, show with you. And I appreciate you taking the time to interview me. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good rest of the day and stay safe, okay? Thanks, you too. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.